Hello and welcome back to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar. I hope you all are staying safe and healthy. It is still a global pandemic out there. As I look out my window, it is Sunday, April 12th. Uh, it is Easter, so I wish all of you that observe Easter uh, an Easter. And those of you that observe Passover, I wish you a Passover. It feels odd to me to use the word happy uh, in conjunction with either of those things at this time when the, the counts are dire, the metrics are bad and getting worse. Um, so I will just wish all of you an Easter and a Passover. Um, of course, things are indeed getting serious. They're, they have been serious for quite a while. Uh, for those of you that have lost loved ones, um, I, I mourn with you. I've lit some candles here and I've got a glass of bourbon in my hands and I lift my glass to uh, the dead and those of us that are living. Um, and indeed, it's one reason why this uh, podcast uh, has been relaunched with this particular essay, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, because in this next section, uh, shit's about to get real, David Foster Wallace style. He's about to actually take us into themes of, of some seriousness. Um, and so as a way of giving you some respite from the news, but also as a way of giving your minds uh, something to to immerse in and soak in and contemplate and reflect, let us get into a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Let's buckle up, folks. Here we go with David Foster Wallace from 1996. Section 3. This one incident made the Chicago news. Some weeks before I underwent my own luxury cruise, a 16-year-old male did a brody off the upper deck of a megaship. I think a carnival or crystal ship. A suicide. The news version was that it had been an unhappy adolescent love thing, a shipboard romance gone bad, etc. I think part of it was something else, something there's no way a real news story could cover. There is something about a mass-market luxury cruise that's unbearably sad. Like most unbearably sad things, it seems incredibly elusive and complex in its causes and simple in its effect. On board the Nader, especially at night when all the ship's structured fun and reassurances and gaiety noise ceased, I felt despair. The word's overused and banalified now, despair. But it's a serious word, and I'm using it seriously. For me, it denotes a simple admixture. A weird yearning for death combined with a crushing sense of my own smallness and futility that presents as a fear of death. It's, it's maybe close to what people call dread, or angst. But it's, it's not these things, quite. It's more like wanting to die in order to escape the unbearable feeling of becoming aware that I'm small and weak and selfish and going without any doubt at all to die. It's wanting to jump overboard. 
I predict this will get cut by the editor, but I need to cover some background. I, who had never before this cruise actually been on the ocean, have always associated the ocean with dread and death. As a little kid, I used to memorize shark fatality data. Not just attacks, fatalities. The Albert Kogler fatality off Baker's Beach, California in 1959, parenthesis, Great White. The USS Indianapolis smorgasbord off the Philippines in 1945, parenthesis, many varieties. Authorities think mostly tigers and blues, footnote five. The most fatalities attributed to a single shark series of incidents around Matawan, Spring Lake, New Jersey in 1916, parenthesis, great white again. This time they caught a Carcharias in Raritan Bay, New Jersey and found human parts in Gastro, sub parenthesis. I know which parts and whose. The footnote for this one, by the way, goes like this. It says, I'm doing this from memory. I don't need a book. I can still name every documented Indianapolis fatality, including some serial numbers and hometowns. Parenthesis. Hundreds of men lost. 80 classed as shark. 7th through 10th August 1945. The Indianapolis had just delivered Little Boy, the nuclear bomb, to the island of Tinian for delivery to Hiroshima. So, ironists, take note. Robert Shaw as Quint reprised the whole incident in 1975's Jaws, a film that, as you can imagine, was like fetish porn to me at age 13. Let's get back to the essay. In school, I ended up writing three different papers on the castaway section of Moby Dick, the chapter where the cabin boy Pip falls overboard and is driven mad by the empty immensity of what he finds himself floating in. And when I teach school now, I always teach Crane's horrific The Open Boat. And I get bent out of shape when the kids find the story dull or jaunty adventurous. I want them to feel the same marrow-level dread of the oceanic I've always felt. The intuition of the sea as primordial nada, bottomless, depths inhabited by cackling, tooth-studded things rising toward you at the rate a feather falls. Anyway, hence the atavistic shark fetish, which, I need to admit, came back with a long-repressed vengeance on this luxury cruise, and that I made such a fuss about the one possible dorsal fin I saw off starboard that my companions at supper's table 64 finally had to tell me, with all possible tact, to shut up about the fin already. There's a footnote here, footnote 6. And I'll admit that on the very first night of the Seven and Sea, I asked the staff of the Nader's five-star Caravelle restaurant whether I could maybe have a spare bucket of au jus drippings from supper so I could try chumming for sharks off the back rail of the top deck. Uh, and that this request struck everybody from the maitre d'on down as disturbing and maybe even disturbed. And that it turned out to be a serious journalistic faux pas because I'm almost positive the maitre d' passed this disturbing tidbit on 
to Mr. Dermatitis, and that it was a big reason why I was denied access to stuff like the ship's galley, thereby impoverishing the sensuous scope of this article. Plus, it also revealed how little I understood the nader's sheer size. Twelve decks and a hundred and fifty feet up, the Aujus drippings would have dispersed into a vague red cologne by the time they hit the water, with concentrations of blood inadequate to attract or excite a serious shark, whose fin would have probably looked like a pushpin from that height anyway. Right, back to the main body of the body of the essay. I don't think it's an accident that seven and sea luxury cruises appeal mostly to older people. I don't mean decrepitly old, but I mean like age 50-plus people, for whom their own mortality is something more than an abstraction. Most of the exposed bodies to be seen all over the daytime nadir were in various stages of disintegration. And the ocean itself, which, by the way, I found to be salty as hell, like sore throat soothing gargle grade salty, its spray so corrosive corrosive <laughs> that one temple hinge of my glasses is probably going to have to be replaced. The ocean itself turns out to be basically one enormous engine of decay. Seawater corrodes vessels with amazing speed, rusts them, exfoliates paint, strips varnish, dulls shine, coats ship's hulls with barnacles and kelp clumps, and a vague, ubiquitous nautical snot that seems like death incarnate. We saw some real horrors in port, local boats that looked dripped in a mixture of acid and shit, scabbed with rust and goo, ravaged by what they float in. Not so the Megalines ships. It's not an accident they're all so white and clean, for they're clearly meant to represent the Calvinist triumph of capital and industry over the primal decay action of the sea. The nader seemed to have a whole battalion of wiry little third world guys who went around the ship in navy blue jumpsuits, scanning for decay to overcome. Writer Frank Conroy, who has an odd little essay marshal in the front of Celebrity Cruise's 7NC brochure, talks about how, quote, it became a private challenge for me to try to find a piece of dull bright work, a chipped rail, a stain in the deck, a slack cable, or anything that wasn't perfectly shipshape. Eventually, toward the end of the trip, I found a capstan. This is apparently a type of nautical hoist, like a pulley on steroids, footnote 7. I found a capstan with a half-dollar-sized patch of rust on the side facing the sea. My delight in this tiny flaw was interrupted by the arrival, even as I stood there, of a crewman with a roller and a bucket of white paint. I watched as he gave the entire capstan a fresh coat of paint and walked away with a nod. Unquote. Okay, so here's the thing. A vacation is a respite from unpleasantness. And since consciousness of death and decay are unpleasant, it may seem weird that Americans' ultimate fantasy vacation 
involves being plunked down in an enormous primordial engine of death and decay. But on a seven and sea luxury cruise, we are skillfully enabled in the construction of various fantasies of triumph over just this death and decay. One way to triumph is via the rigors of self-improvement and the crew's amphetaminic upkeep of the nadir is an unsubtle analog to personal titivation, diet, exercise, mega-vitamin supplements, cosmetic surgery, Franklin Quest time management seminars, and etc. There's another way out, too, with respect to death. Not titivation, but titillation. Not hard work, but hard play. The seven and seas, constant activities, parties, festivities, gaiety, and song. The adrenaline, the excitement, the stimulation. It makes you feel vibrant, alive. It makes your existent seem non-contingent. Footnote 8. The Nader's got literally hundreds of cross-sectional maps of the ship on every deck, at every elevator and junction, each with a red dot and a, You are here! And it doesn't take long to figure out that these are less for orientation than for some weird kind of reassurance. You, you are here. Back to the essay. The hard play option promises not a transcendence of death dread so much as just drowning it out. Quote, sharing a laugh with your friends in the lounge after dinner, footnote 9, always constant references to friends in the brochure's text, part of this promise of escape from death dread is that no cruiser is ever alone. Sharing a laugh with your friends in the lounge after dinner, you glance at your watch and mention that it's almost showtime. When the curtain comes down, after a standing ovation, the talk among your companions, footnote 10, see, the talk among your companions turns to what next? Perhaps a visit to the casino or a little dancing in the disco? Maybe a quiet drink in the piano bar or a starlit stroll around the deck? After discussing all your options, everyone agrees. Let's do it all! Unquote. Okay, so Dante this isn't. But Celebrity Cruise's Seven and Sea brochure is nevertheless an extremely powerful and ingenious piece of advertising. The brochure is magazine size, heavy and glossy, beautifully laid out, its text offset by art-quality photos of upscale couples, footnote 11, upscale couples, tanned faces, locked in a kind of rictus of pleasure. Footnote 11 goes like this, always couples in this brochure, and even in group shots, it's always groups of couples. I never did get hold of a brochure for an actual singles cruise, but the mind reels. There was a singles get-together on the Nader that first Saturday night, held in Deck 8's Scorpio Disco, which, after an hour of self-hypnosis and controlled breathing, I steeled myself to go to. But even the get-together was 75% established couples, and the few of us singles under, like, 70 all looked grim and self-hypnotized, and the whole affair seemed like a true wrist-slitter, and I beat a retreat 
after half an hour because Jurassic Park was scheduled to run on the TV that night. And I hadn't yet looked at the whole schedule and seen that Jurassic Park would play several dozen times over the coming week, surfacing back up into the essay. Art quality photos of upscale couples, tanned faces, locked in a kind of rictus of pleasure. All the megalines put out brochures, and they're essentially interchangeable. The middle part of the brochures detail the different packages and routes. Basic 7NCs go to the Western Caribbean, Jamaica, Grand Cayman, Cozumel, or the Eastern Caribbean, Puerto Rico, Virgins, or something called the Deep Caribbean, Martinique, Barbados, Miro. There are also 10 and 11 night ultimate Caribbean packages that hit pretty much every exotic coastline between Miami and the Panama Canal. The brochure's final section's boilerplate always detail costs, footnote 12, passport stuff, customs regulations, caveats, footnote 12 about costs, from $2,500 to about $4,000 for mass-market megaships like the Nader, unless you want a presidential suite with a skylight, wet bar, automatic palm fronds, etc., in which case double that. By the way, a quick Hari note here. <laughs> those, those are numbers in $96, 1996. Uh, the current going rate for cruises like this uh, start from about $6,000 for a very, very simple interior cabin and go upward of $10,000. Ah, uh, well. All right, back to the essay. But it's the first section of these brochures that really grabs you. The photos and italicized blurbs from... Fodder's cruisers and burlets, the dreamy mazansons and breathless prose. Celebrity's brochure in particular is a real two-napkin drooler. It has little hypertextish offsets boxed in gold that say stuff like indulgence becomes easy and relaxation becomes second nature and stress becomes a faint memory. And these promises point to the third kind of death and dread transcendence the nadir offers, one that requires neither work nor play, the enticement that is a seven and seas, real carrot and stick. And that's the end of section three. Whew. All right, let me take a, a little drink here and raise a toast to the dead and the living among us. Hmm. Yeah. So that may have taken some of you by surprise, David Foster Wallace, and especially three episodes in, and you may have been wondering, why did I choose this essay and why all this talk about something as frivolous as cruise ships? This is, this is uh, why this particular essay has been on my mind uh, ever since this... Uh, this pandemic hit, hit us in the U.S. anyway. Um, so here are some Hari notes to close out this, this episode. You know, this particular section, I, I couldn't help but read it and hear an echo from 96 to today. His, his reflections on despair. You know, let me go back and read that part. Uh, the words overused and banalified now, despair, but it's a serious word. And I'm using it seriously. And that's what David Foster is saying back then. And, and I'm using that word seriously now, too, as Hari. Um, he's right. 
for me, despair is this weird yearning for death combined with a crushing sense of our own smallness and futility. And especially in this in this time of a pandemic where it does feel futile. We are in a in a situation where there is this global pandemic and there's also coupled with local epidemics of stupidity and propaganda. You know, for those of you listening to this internationally, you may not be as close to the sense of futility and sheer maddening terror that has been what life has been like in the U.S. for the past three years for most people and for the past at least 20 years for most of us who have kind of seen the the virus of, of, of stupidity and propaganda uh, you know, cripple our, our public institutions here. And so those are also themes, by the way, that David Foster Wallace explored in many of his other essays. And it's, it's one reason why I've loved teaching his essays. And I want to encourage those of you who find his, his writing interesting. Uh, this is from his book called Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. And it contains a collection of his essays. And this is just one of those essays. Um, because there is this way in which he faces head on with this sense of despair, the sense of futility, and the sense of this, you know, what do you do when everything around you seems to be just going to hell? And especially in these times of isolation where it feels like there's really not much we can do about it. We're being told to just stay indoors and not go outside and not not connect with people at a time when we really feel that, that keen sense of loss, of grief and mourning. How do we, how do we cope? Um, especially for those of us who are isolated and alone. He talks about this idea of like, it's more like wanting to die in order to escape the unbearable feeling of becoming aware that I am small and weak and selfish and going to die without any doubt at all. It's wanting to jump overboard. The irony here is that David Foster Wallace himself, uh, well, uh, he took his own life. Um, I hesitate to say he committed suicide, and I should have mentioned a trigger warning for any of you that are like me, have struggled with depression or continue to struggle with, with despair. Um, but I feel that David Foster Wallace didn't entirely just commit suicide. There was a sense of agency in him choosing to take his own life in the face of all of this despair. When I first encountered David Foster Wallace's writing, I too was struggling with depression, and that resonated with me to, to, to see him wrestle so openly with feelings of despair and with feelings of, of futility in his writing. Um, and I wasn't alone. One of the reasons why I chose to teach David Foster Wallace's essays is that so many of my students at co in college were also struggling with mental health. And this was at a time, especially uh, even just recently, so a few years ago, where mental health concerns were not really uh, considered part of the educational experience for students. It's been more recently that mental health has been more and more acknowledged, uh, even in work settings. Um, but there is a real sense that in David Foster Wallace's writing, there is a, there's an openness to addressing mental health, not as the main topic, but as something that's connected to something that is every day, is mundane. Um, and so that's, that's the other thing that, that I, I really enjoy about David Foster Wallace's writing is that in this moment of despair, he offers a way to think our way through it. He talks, for example, about feeling this despair while on a cruise, 
at, at a time where everybody around him is partying and, and he happens to be this kind of person, this really thoughtful, deep person that notices all of this, this, this stuff around the surface, under the surface. And so later on he talks about, he categorizes the two different ways that cruises offer an escape from this, this dread. And he says, one way to triumph is via the rigors of self-improvement, what he calls titivation. Uh, personal titivation, diet, exercise, megavitamin supplements, cosmetic surgery, and so on, time management, productivity seminars. Um, and I can't help but think, when I look around now on, on Instagram, I just recently joined Instagram. I'm on Instagram. Uh, Hari Tell a Story is my handle there. Um, and it's not just Instagram, but on LinkedIn and on, on so many other, other conversations, there seem to be two distinct patterns. One of them is so many people out there seem to be posting all kinds of stuff about being so productive and working out and and finding hobbies and, and learning music and, and all this. And, and I'm trying to do that too, by the way. I'm not, I'm not alone in this. Uh, my Instagram feed is filled with pictures of hot couples and partner workouts. Um, the the other thing he says is there's the other way out, not titivation, but titillation. Not hard work, but hard play. The constant activities, the parties, the festivities, the gaiety and song, the adrenaline, the excitement, the stimulation. And similarly, on Instagram, the, the second pattern that I see, there's there's a ton of stuff out there where people are simply trying to have fun and who can blame them who can who can blame us um, these two things titivation and titillation the drive to try to find some sanity in this apocalypse by trying to keep to a workout routine or trying to stay healthy and then maybe even just a couple minutes later ah just letting go and just being hedonistic i think a, a lot of us feel that that swerve back and forth between those two all the time. And this is one of the things that that um, uh, you know, people would assign David Foster Wallace to write essays on. They would send him to things like cruise ships. You know, They sent him to things like the State Fair or to a lobster festival. The things that a lot of us just take for granted and we don't think twice about. Just to see what David Foster Wallace's mind would make of, of these from a human condition perspective. And so again, I wonder... I wish he was alive to to observe and to to comment on the Instagram age uh, of a pandemic in the Instagram age. What would he make of social isolation and despair in this pandemic? Um, and I I feel that in in many ways for us who are here uh, still living and as we are trying to wrestle with this. And as we are ourselves feeling that swerve back and forth between titivation and titillation, essays like David Foster Wallace and this kind of conversation offers a third way. It's to think and feel our way through this together, to allow both our hearts and our minds to connect socially, even distantly socially. So many of us are, are finding ourselves mourning and grieving, but in a weird isolation uh, many of us, like myself, are quite physically alone. And in this time, I've been thankful for my neighbors who have been calling every now and then, just so we can have a conversation over the phone, we can hear our voices uh, in, in this distantly social kind of way. But even for many of us who are with our own families, locked indoors, there's this strange feeling of isolation. 
and especially as we hear about friends of ours that have lost loved ones, or especially as we hear about our own loved ones passing away alone, isolated, and we feel this this crippling futility of not being able to be there for them, but also not being able to be there for each other, not being able to do something as simple as just hug somebody who is grieving, who's mourning a loss. My neighbor is uh, an ICU nurse, and uh, uh, I mentioned to my neighbor that you know they're doing heroic work and that after this they deserve a medal. And my neighbor's response was over text that all they really want is a hug. It's something as simple as that. And so let us end this section three with this this call to let us think and feel our way through this together. I hope you all stay safe, stay home, stay healthy, stay human. I'll talk to you tomorrow when we get into section four of a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again by David Foster Wallace. Thank you.